Hello, welcome to our uh, cross-cultural talk program for uh, this Tuesday. It is the 15th of uh, January. I'm Gary Michaels, and we have a very special program for you today. It's a public information session, and it's coming to you in two parts today, and uh, hopefully next Tuesday uh, we'll have an opportunity to share some more time with you to talk about our program, especially entitled No Uranium, and that's spelled K-N-O-W. It's being sponsored by a coalition, OCAMU. That's O-C-A-M-U. Uh, this is a group of ordinary people in eastern Ontario, western Quebec, and also uh, it includes the First Nations concerned about the radiation dangers of recent proposals for uranium exploration and mining at Charbot Lake. You may have heard about this recently in the news, uh, all the way up to the uh, Mississippi and Ottawa River watersheds. Everybody in the region should be aware of the advantages of uranium for energy and medical purposes. We've heard about that in the news. And equally aware of the dangers that exploration, mining, and processing have for our health, our environment, for thousands and thousands of years to come. Well, just how safe is uranium? Radiation affects all of us equally. It makes no distinction between race, color, creed, or gender. It also gets into our air, our water supply, our food via the food chain. It makes no distinction between First Nations, English Canada, French Canada, and all ethnic groups for that matter. All of us need to take properly informed decisions. We have to make those decisions. Uh, and today we have an opportunity to uh, share some of that information with you. And I would personally like to thank Jeremy Wright for helping to organize uh, our program today. He will be co-hosting the show with me, which, by the way, was recorded yesterday. And we're going to be chatting with Dr. Jim Harding. He is the author of uh, Canada's Deadly Secrets, Saskatchewan Uranium and the Global Nuclear System. And we're also going to be speaking with Lorraine Reckmans, co-editor of This is My Homeland, where she chronicles the impacts of uranium mining on her Aboriginal community's traditional territory. Pardon me, the story of the people of Serpent River First Nation and their experience near Elliott Lake here in Ontario. And we certainly hope that you find this program informative and join us again next week as well when we uh, have an opportunity to speak to a couple of more guests, which I'll tell you more about a little later. But let's get into the program, and we're going to begin by uh, saying hello to Dr. Jim Harding. Yeah, I'm here and happy. Perfect. And uh, we also have uh, Lorraine Rickmans uh, on the line with us as well. Lorraine? Yes, I'm here. And in the studio with me, we're just about set to get underway, is uh, Jeremy Wright. Have you? Have either one of you met Jeremy yet? No. <laughs> no, I'm hoping I'll meet him in a week or so. <laughs> yeah, Jeremy, uh, maybe you'd like to give us a little bit of a background uh, just as we start to get into Ab- this. Absolutely. Actually, I don't think the three of us are as much strangers in paradise as, uh, yeah. as they would like, to, like, like uh, the audience to believe. However, just a quick background on myself for you two. Um, I describe myself generally as a recovering economist and I spent some time with the federal government and uh, Chin Radio have uh, been kind enough to invite me in uh, occasionally to do a series uh, of the economics of conflict and uh, this isn't the first show that I've been talking on and for some reason they're uh, I think they're out of my minds but out of their minds but they keep asking me back again. Now, we're still trying to figure out why, Dr. Harding and Lorraine Reckmans. <laughs> well, we're, we're probably all uh, facing the consequences of the economists, and they definitely do need to recover. Uh, exactly. So anyway, let me just a bit of background on, on what these, uh, uh, these, this show is the first of two. 
most privileged to have with us for the audience uh, Dr. Jim Harding from uh, Saskatchewan and uh, Lorraine Reckmans from uh, Elliott Lake. Uh, the topic that we're discussing, or will be discussing, is no uranium, spelt K-N-O-W, and asking the question, just how safe is it? Now, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know that much about uranium. I know that it was used in the atomic bombs in uh, uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, I know it's touted as the uh, uh, as the safe uh, and powerful energy which is going to see us through the post-carbon era. And um, that's probably about all I know about it. I know the Prime Minister has said uh, that it's safe. Uh, there's alarm bells going off here in the uh, Ottawa region because of uh, uh, a recent kerfuffle over Chalk River, and uh, that's been in the papers. And more particularly, uh, the community is beginning to become aware of the situation in Charbot Lake. Uh, so today, uh, we have uh, Jim, you, and you, Lorraine, uh, talking about the overall Canadian experience. I mean, what have we in different parts of Canada experienced with uranium? And then next week, also on Tuesday, we are most privileged to have Donna Dillman come and talk to us about uh, uh, what's going on in Ardock and Charbot Lake and what are the dangers to uh, the Ottawa River Shed, the Ottawa Valley, the Mississippi, the Rideau Lake system, and then the entire uh, national capital region population if the worst comes to the worst. And so, as I said, I don't know that much about uranium, and I'm sure that a lot of the listeners here have probably know even less than I do. Uh, Jeremy, what I'd like to do is uh, just before we uh, we give uh, both Dr. Jim Harding and Lorraine Reckmans an opportunity to uh, express their thoughts on the topic today, I would uh, just give a quick background on uh, Jim Harding. Uh, uh, he is uh, he holds a PhD. He's the author of Canada's Deadly Secret: Saskatchewan Uranium and the Global Nuclear System. And Lorraine Reckmans has also written uh, This Is My Homeland, which chronicles the impacts of uranium mining on her aboriginal community's traditional territory near Elliott Lake. So uh, that is a bit of a background, but uh, if I may, Lorraine, uh, tell us what moved you besides, uh, what moved you to write uh, This Is My Homeland and and uh, where you stand right now? Okay, um, I'd like to maybe just say that, I, I mean, I was born and raised at Elliott Lake, and my father did work um, at, at Denison Mines there since the late 50s. Um, it's, I think, primarily the experience with the environmental degradation um, and a lot of the uh, social sort of um, social upheaval um, that was experienced by the community because of the uranium cycle, the up and down uh, market, uh, the community's future and well-being was tied definitely to world market prices, mm-hmm. and uh, they were up and down like a yo-yo since the 50s, and I think as an economist, uh, Jeremy would appreciate the, the impact that the economy has on communities. Uh, Serpent River First Nation was impacted uh, directly from the uranium chain because they hosted a sulfuric acid plant in the, right in the middle of the village, mm-hmm. um, and the sulfur was used to leach the, uh, leach the ore out of the rock. But that was, a, that was a decision by the Department of Indian Affairs to move Aboriginal people into a wage economy. And uh, the sulfuric acid plant just had devastating 
uh, impacts on the health and the environment of the village directly. Um, so I think it was important to capture the experience um, to tell that story so that this sort of thing wouldn't happen again. Did you uh, did you encounter a, a fair bit of opposition uh, when you were putting this together or afterwards, Lorraine? Well, I worked uh, I worked as a journalist um, for the Elliott Lake newspaper in the late 1980s, and I did um, I did get a lot of opposition and threats uh, from mm-hmm. writing about the impacts of uranium on the environment and human health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a, at the time just before the closures. Uh, you know, and then there was a federal environmental assessment, and there was a lot of um, social dynamics and sort of unrest, and um, you can imagine 3,000 layoffs in a, in a community, you know, of 10,000 people. Did it ever, did the community ever recover from that? that I, I would say that they didn't recover. Uh-huh. I mean, there was a $250 million grant. Right. Um, that was offered to try to stabilize the economy, uh-huh. and it relies heavily now on on retirement, um, you know, retirement living. Yes, yes. So the the population is quite uh, quite old compared to a lot of communities. Uh-huh. I recall uh, quite vividly uh, listening to and seeing ads about Elliott Lake being a wonderful retirement community, Uh, and I would imagine it would be, right? It's a town of 11,000 people with 10 doctors. Um, Of those 11,000, 50% are over the age of 60. Oh, wow. So you can imagine the infrastructure that's required to support an aging population. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just isn't there. Right. Uh, Jeremy, would you like to uh, to talk to Dr. Harding a little bit and ask him about his background? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, as I started off by saying, I know very little about uranium. And, uh, Jim, maybe I'd ask, like to ask you what got you in your career or what turned you towards uranium and uh, uranium mining and the whole issue that you've, uh, this journey that, and I must say, almost world-famous journey that you've been on. Well... I grew up here and was a supporter and fan of uh, Tommy Douglas. And in fact, he used to come to speak at Ban the Bomb uh, uh, demonstrations and conferences that I was involved in organizing. At the time, we had no idea that Saskatchewan was one of the main sources of the uranium fuel for the nuclear arms race, uh, particularly the U.S. and Britain. Mm-hmm. It was actually when I taught uh, environmental health at University of Waterloo in the 70s and began to look at the world differently, um, in a sense a recovering political economist, starting to realize the, 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 the need to shift from an economic growth to an ecological sustainability perspective and then met some people who had been involved in the nuclear debate in Ontario because the waste uh, issue was starting to get some public attention. It was with those new eyes, and when I came back to Saskatchewan and worked in the health field, that I started digging and poking around, and then some of us, of course, unsurfaced the weapons connection that had been there all along but had not been publicly uh, realized we were suffering from our own state of amnesia. So I stayed involved through the inquiries that expanded uranium mining and uh, just found myself drawn along by the events and helped organize some international meetings and 
kept notes, and finally, 30 years later, I realized I better write this up because otherwise it's going to end up in the archives. And so that's where the book came. Okay, so on on behalf of uh, certainly myself, that's a great uh, um, a great sort of beginning to the uh, to the program. Um, could you talk just a minute um, <clears throat> about what is uranium and why? I mean, we've heard that uh, uranium is safe; that it's uh, as I'd say to start with. But from the little research I've done. And from what I gather, the health and environment impacts are, uh, are, are, are quite dramatic. Uh, could you uh, just brief us? Well, uh, look, uranium, like, we could talk about uh, the whole creation of the planet and all of that, because that's part of this. But uranium certainly the heaviest metal on the planet. It takes... Um, billions of years to lose its radioactivity and decay down into lead. In the process, uranium is giving off uh, uh, a radiation. So when it's in the deep rock underground, it, yes, is still giving off some of its radiation. But when it's mined and milled and the tailings are left above ground, and the yellow cake is sent into the nuclear fuel system for enriching and then going to nuclear power plants and nuclear weapons and creating nuclear waste, we make not only that radioactivity bioavailable in the sense that it now is available to more easily work through the systems of winds and waters and ecosystems and food chains and human lungs, but we, we actually concentrate it in the nuclear fuel system into new toxic fuels, the plutoniums, the transuranic elements that are actually created by fission. So, you know, it's hard not to see it as a health and environmental risk when you understand the process. But we've been having a battle with the weapons and the nuclear uh, power plant industry for decades over safety. And if you go back to 58, you'll find that they said that 35 REMs was safe, and now we're down into a debate of whether one REM is safe in terms of, say, annual exposure to a worker. So there's been a constant debate about how radiation and background radiation isn't really a problem, but we are learning steadily and consistently through the science and the experience that this stuff, um, it isn't a good idea to get any more of this stuff in our bodies and in our lungs. And, of course, uranium is being spread by the industry through the depleted uranium uh, weapons, through the buildup of nuclear waste, through the incredible buildup of tailings at places like Elliott Lake and Uranium City and in the uh, Navajo land areas in the states where there was a lot of uranium mining and all over uh, Eastern Europe where the Russians did it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. well, this you... is not a safe, uh, you know, as it decays, uh, it, it goes through a whole number of processes and are always giving off different kinds of radiation. The alpha radiation that comes from the radon gas uh, that is constantly being produced by the radium that is a byproduct of the uranium is uh, particularly toxic if it's breathed in into the lungs and that's a, the major reason why uh, uranium workers had about four times the 
expected rate of lung cancer. And it's the reason why the Surgeon General of the United States has pinpointed radon gas as the second cause of lung cancer. And the World Health Organization now estimates about 15% of the worldwide lung cancers from radon gas. And, of course, some of that's naturally occurring, but we're spreading that through the nuclear fuel system. So it's more available all the time to uh, public inhalation. (laughs) Go ahead, Lorraine. Yeah, I would just like to say, I mean... You know, if you look at, at the process in terms of mining, I mean, what they do is extract, extract the, the ore and add sulfuric acid to it, crush it up, you know, take away, take away the uranium and leave the radioactive byproducts and the sulfuric acid in mm-hmm. what they call natural basins, which are existing lakes. And at Elliott Lake, the environmental cost has been 10 lakes that have been filled with tailings you know, and impact on on existing groundwater systems. Can I uh, just let me jump in here, Jeremy? I, 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 this is really a learning experience for me, and uh, and it fits uh, <clears throat> very well with our title, No Uranium, K-N-O-W. Uh, recently in the news, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, there was some discussion up on uh, Parliament Hill about uh, the isotopes and the lack thereof uh, that's right. that's being used in in in, in the healthcare system, and uh, there was some news from uh, the Attorney General who said, "Hey, wait a minute! Yep. Uh, months and months ago, or years ago, we told the government uh, there are problems uh, uh, with uh, Atom- Atomic Energy of Canada, and they had to uh, fix or replace these reactors, and nothing's been done. So fill me in on this stuff." Um, do you want me to go ahead on that? Yeah, please. Um, I'm watching this with a very close eye, and I think sometimes we watch what's happening somewhere else in Canada with a closer eye, because I certainly know uh, Canadians from out of Saskatchewan seem to be following what's happening here a little more closely than our own, you know, than our own residents. Yeah. But the Maple 1 and the Maple 2 reactors, which the ACL uh, got millions of dollars from the government to build. Were started in the mid 90s. Were supposed to be operational by 98, 99, 2000. They were supposed to be the replacement reactors to produce the uh, isotopes for nuclear medicine. Mm-hmm. And they have had such design flaws with those two reactors. And we can talk about that if you want. They basically are working backwards in terms of the safety design. They're supposed to reduce power if there's a loss of coolant accident and they're actually increasing power. So, of course, the regulatory body is not, thank goodness, not allowing these on stream. Mm-hmm. They're about $350 million over cost already. So they're still using this 50-year-old, uh, older-designed reactor for the isotope market. Um, so, you know, the, if there's a, quote, health crisis... It has a lot to do with the technology of AECL not being reliable in terms of replacing this old reactor. Hmm. Now, what interests me is it's the first time. I've got a lot in my book on the history of the regulatory body that preceded the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, the AECB. And many of us were, were very concerned that they were so close to the industry that they were promoting more than regulating. So this shift to a new body, from my perspective, is one small step in the right direction. This is the first time I can recall in following this stuff for 30 years that that commission has ever sort of used its stick 
and said, well, you know, we forewarned you, you had to have a second backup system. It's an old reactor. Its dangers are increasing with its aging process. So we're going we're gonna to make you shut down now because you haven't done it. What the public didn't know is that AECA had been failing since the mid-90s to create a replacement reactor to provide this need. Now, the other side of this, which I, I think the Ottawa Citizen had one story that, that opened this up, mm-hmm. is that there's a huge debate about whether we ought to be using weapons-grade enriched uranium for producing isotopes in view of how easy it is for that material to be transferred into the weapons system. And the American Nuclear Medicine Association has called for the ceasing of production of isotopes through this dangerous weapons-grade system. Uh, There are alternative technologies available. Photon rays apparently can break off uh, the molybdenum uh, byproduct that's used as the nuclear tracer. So, you know, there's a heck of a lot here that needs to be brought into the light. But in particular, AECL's continued record of flawed designs Mm. and our dependence on a system that we possibly don't even need to be dependent on to get these isotopes for uh, for the medical system. Oh. Just want to remind folks who may have just tuned into our program, this is Chin in Ottawa 97.9 or uh, anywhere in the world at www.chinradio.com. We look forward to hearing uh, from you if you have any comments on this or any of our uh, other programs here on Ottawa's Multicultural Voice. But I would also like to uh, uh, remind you that uh, our guests today are uh, Dr. Jim Harding, uh, who has written Canada's Deadly Secret, Saskatchewan Uranium and the Global Nuclear System, along with Lorraine Reckmans, who's uh, with us from Elliott Lake, Ontario, and uh, uh, her published work is This Is My Homeland. Dr. Harding, uh, we're going to take a brief break, but before we do, and uh, Lorraine, uh, Jeremy's going to leave you with a question, and when we come back, we're hopeful that you will both have an answer for us. What, what was it what you wanted to know about, Jeremy? Okay, well, what I wanted to know about, because, I mean, a lot of this stuff is alphabet soup, and uh, uh, what little I've done, you have something called a REM, an R-E-M, which could stand for almost anything. Now, you said... Uh, that uh, the sort of safety levels have been coming down from 35 rems to one rem. Now, mm. I don't know what a, wem I- uh, right. a rem is. Uh, secondly, from what little I've read, a lot of the safety levels have been determined in the past by what I would call a safe static dose, whereas you get something like radon gas uh, leaking into your basement, and I just happened to come back from BC, and I know there's some radon problems in some of the basements there as well as elsewhere, you get a cumulative dose. And my understanding is you get a cumulative dose of something and that the difference between 1 rem and 35 rem is simply the amount of time it takes you to take a lethal dose. Mm-hmm. And I, if somebody... And yeah. that's, one, that's one issue I'd like to talk about when we come back. And then, Lorraine, uh, I would very much like to uh, uh, hear you talk on... Uh, what's happened to Elliott Lake? Why is it a retirement community? Uh, what happens to the food chain? What happens to the to nature? What happens to those lakes and the fish in them? Have the have the fish become unfit to eat? And in you know, there's, I, I want to start getting a, a little bit on the uh, an actual case history of the downside 
of uranium mining because everybody here is just only 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 touts the upside, and this upside stuff. And the downside stuff, I think the uh, the entire national capital region needs to know about it because we are facing the situation at Charbot Lake. We'll be right back after this break with more of our cross-cultural program with uh, Dr. Jim Harding and Lorraine Reckman's Jeremy Wright and Gary Michaels. On Chin Radio 97.9, want to remind you as well that this program is sponsored by a coalition of plain old folks, ordinary people here in eastern Ontario and western Quebec, and including uh, the First Nations concerned about the radiation dangers of recent proposals for uranium exploration and mining at uh, Charbot Lake to the Mississippi and Ottawa River watersheds. And uh, the question we are asking is just how safe is uranium? We're also holding an evening, uh, an information evening coming up on uh, or at 120 Metcalf at the the Ottawa main branch of the Ottawa Public Library. That'll be coming up a week from today, next Wednesday, January 23rd. uh, 23rd. It begins uh, shortly after 6 o'clock. And uh, you're invited to uh, to join us for the information session there. And you'll also be entertained by the Just Voices Choir. And uh, Dr. Jim Harding is also uh, putting together a book tour of uh, the National Capital Region, including Perth, Carlton Place, Wakefield, and, of course, here, Ottawa. Now, if you'd like some more information on uh, today's program or any of these events that are upcoming, the person you uh, may wish to email is... Michelle underscore Landry at simpatico.ca, and I'll give you her email address. Michelle, M I C H E, M I C H E double L E underscore Landry, that's L A N D R Y, at simpatico.ca. The website you may wish to go to, www.nouranium.org. Now, that's no, K-N-O, the N and O are capitalized, W. www.no-uranium.org. Check it out and find out more. We're going back to our program now on uh, Cross-Cultural Talk from Chin Radio, where we had an opportunity to chat with Dr. Jim Harding and Lorraine Reckman. Welcome back to Chin's Cross-Cultural Talk program. This is Gary Michaels. Jeremy Wright is uh, my in-studio guest, and we have on the line with us uh, from uh, Saskatchewan, Dr. Jim Harding, and from Elliott Lake, Ontario, Lorraine Reckman's Again, Dr. Harding, exactly where are you in uh, Saskatchewan? I'm about an hour uh, east of Regina in the Capel Valley. Wonderful. By the way, if I may ask, I always like to, I always like to, uh, to ask the weather question. What is the weather doing out there today, if I may? You know, we're not getting winter. No. We've been watching winter in California and winter on the East Coast. We seem to be in the middle of a system here for several years. Wow. And yes, I do believe in global warming. <laughs> okay, good enough. And there are many others who do as well. Uh, Lorraine, how about the weather in Elliott Lake today? What's happening there? Well, it's it's minus three, and it doesn't seem like January weather to me either. No, so there is there is something to this business they're talking about, right? Well, this is the time <laughs> of year when you expect it to be 30 below. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't know who wants to answer Jeremy's, Jeremy, the questions again, just to refresh uh, their memories. Yeah, uh, maybe I could start off, Jim, by asking you exactly what is a REM? Well, REM stands for rot- rotogen equivalent for man, and rotogen is a measure of the actual radiation. So they, uh, they've been attempting to uh, evaluate not just 
what kind of radiation is coming from uranium or the byproducts, but what is actually absorbed by humans. And so it's simply the, uh, the measurement, and it has shifted. We're now talking more in terms of sieverts. Um, that, that, is more, uh, that is more jargon for me. Well, you see, these are all the terms, and you have to get your way through it. But, in, but the, the important thing to recognize is that, like I use the analogy of smoking, I mean, deny, 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 and then the research keeps telling us, no, 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 there is, and then finally someday we break through and realize that we've been engaged in a sort of a public relations debate rather than an exploration of health effects. Mm-hmm. And the latest uh, report from one of the uh, committees, it's a U.S. Academy of Science report, says without hesitation based on the most updated analysis, there really is no safe low level of radiation. There's no threshold. So we're, uh, you know, there's, there's a threshold for the industry because there's a point at which radiation protection starts to interfere with the bottom line and so there's often what's called the alara principle and that simply that's an economic not a health definition it means as low as as is reasonably acceptable and that means to maintain the production yeah but uh, if i can introduce you there because i do want to get on to uh, yep. uh <laughs> have give lorraine a shot uh, you see the the question i'm after is that we've been told that uh, uranium is quote safe and what i'm hearing from you is that uh, we've gone down from 35 rems to one rem at least i can get my mouth around a, a rem mm-hmm. i'm not sure i can get around it about the rest of the jargon but then you see my understanding Understanding is that it uh, then concentrates. Well, first of all, radon gas blows all over the place, as I understand it. Uh, secondly, it concentrates in the food chain, and it's the progeny from the radon gas uh, which does the real damage. And so, um, uh, if you could just sort of explain what are the sort of health risks of that, and then I really would, Lorraine, like to switch to you to get a more detailed explanation of the disaster, ecological disaster in um, at Elliot Lake. Well, you know, in Saskatchewan, they've never actually done a baseline study to allow um, assessments of excess cancers and the potential for compensation. In Ontario, the uranium miners have won some compensation. It took a long, long time for the steel workers to get to that point. For years, there was denial. Here, the records aren't even kept reliably from what we can tell, but there aren't tracking. So what often happens is the impact of this exposure gets averaged out across populations and good solid epidemiological studies would would target people who were getting um, excessive doses and then they would track the cancers well everywhere else where these studies have been done there are excess cancers from exposure to the low-level radiation from uh, the radon daughters or the direct gamma and beta radiation from the ore. Uh, But the regulations have come down in terms of allowables, which is a good thing. But we're now probably predicting excesses of cancers even in these lower levels of exposure um, that health standards. And Chernobyl has changed the picture because now they've had a chance to start doing follow-up from large populations exposed to lower doses 
instead of Hiroshima and Hiroshima, which was extrapolation from people who got very, very high doses. Uh-huh. I guess the lesson here for the public is what we thought in the field were the implications of low-level ration based on high doses from Hiroshima and Nagasaki were underestimating. And yep. now the Hiroshima or the Chernobyl and other studies of low-level radiation indicate there's far more danger from the low levels of radiation than was than was initially thought. Okay, Lorraine, if yes, I could, I mean I, that's true. I think ten years ago, the biological effects of ionizing radiation um, publication, you know, flagged that, saying we can expect more cancers um, than we had predicted because of low levels of exposure over a long period of time. I think it's frustrating to hear people talk about uranium being safe when we know that uranium mining causes cancer. And we can track the dead miners at Elliott Lake. Uh, we, we, certainly we didn't have baseline studies. Um, there's a lot of cancers that are still not compensable um, at the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board. Uh, talk to miners at Elliott Lake that have had uh, cancer of the uh, salivatory gland. Uh, they were told that this wasn't caused from uranium mining. Uh, so, that, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, but I can, you know, can say unequivocally that uranium mining does cause cancer in miners. And it's definitely related to their exposure over long periods of time. Yeah. Um, the environmental damage, and we've had researchers uh, from Laurentian University come to the area and do studies on uptake of radionuclides from the tailings. And what they were finding is that the particulate is um, concentrating in reproductive organs of some of the animals there. The Aboriginal people have been advised to limit their intake of wild game, be it moose, deer, uh, or berries. Uh, so, so there are limits in terms of what we should be consuming, and I think that speaks to your concerns about cumulative dose. Uh, the tailings in Serpent River was contaminated in the 1960s, and there hasn't been any remediation. Um, sampling is ongoing. I think the the environmental, you know, degradation is um, it's forever. I don't know what the half-life of a radionuclide is. I'm sure, you know, Dr. Harding will tell us. But, I mean, this is a legacy that we are going to pass on for generation, from generation to generation. We are responsible to do long-term monitoring and control those dams that are in place that hold back the tailings. You know, they have to be kept intact for thousands and thousands of years. That's our responsibility um, as, you know, stewards of the land. If we're going to live, you know, in these areas, we have to protect our groundwater systems and manage this nuclear waste in perpetuity. That's a cost that isn't factored in to decommissioning. I couldn't project the cost of maintaining, you know, dams for thousands and thousands of years. And we have a responsibility to... Um, produce, I think, the expertise that we're going to need to mitigate, you know, that damage that was done. I just, I wanted to say that I think there's a whole other aspect of this discussion that we haven't touched on, and that's the Aboriginal rights of the people 
in the Serpent River Band. They're signatories to the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850. And this territory that has been desecrated is part of their traditional homeland. These are areas that were hunted on, fished, and, and people were trapping there. Those areas have been removed from the land base, essentially. They're un, unusable and contaminated. So, you know, so we know it's getting into the food chain when the animals demonstrate evidence that they're carrying, you know, radioactive material in their reproductive organs. That's actually quite scary. Um, maybe I can pick up on you on that. Just one, uh, one other question. This is, first of all, from the economics uh, side. I've noticed that uh, when, for example, corporations and banks do their planning, uh, they tend to discount the future in all their calculations. In fact, they return everything to what they call discounted net present value, to throw in an economic term. But what essentially that means is that our entire economic system, as I see it, actually discounts the future rather than um, valuing the future. And so now you tell me that uh, um, that the damage that's caused uh, by the radiation damage is for hundreds of thousands of years. And so, I mean, are we really uh, on the right economic path? I mean, by undervaluing land and life and overvaluing uh, weapon systems and, uh, and so on, are, are we on a sustainable path? Um, I could pick up on that. The tailings... If the cost of long-term uranium tailings management was included in the pricing, the industry would be uneconomic now. So, of course, the discounting of the so-called externalities is the way they maintain themselves in the market. Now, the same thing can be said for the cost of decommissioning nuclear power plants and dealing with spent fuel because plutonium's half-life is 25,000 years, so multiply that by 10, you know, which is like five times the period of human history it took humans to evolve around the planet. Um, so, you know, you're raising, the, to me, the fundamental question. This is not sustainable in any ecological sense. And if the economic system was uh, altered to actually account for the issues of sustainability, then we'd be moving much more quickly towards the renewables and the non, uh, non-polluting energy sources. Uh, behind this, of course, are massive subsidies and loan guarantees that the nuclear power countries have provided basically public subsidies from taxpayers to maintain the system. So ultimately, you do have to analyze it as a part of the weapon system because the energy um, output is so small and the benefits in terms of electrical generation are so minuscule that they would never be tolerated. You know, the, these costs would never be tolerated. Ecological costs in Aboriginal territories with the tailings or future costs around spent fuel. So I've increasingly realized that you just simply have to get into looking at this whole proliferation question because until we can move towards non-proliferation and nuclear disarmament, it seems people are going to keep this technology afloat. Yep. Sorry, if I could just interrupt here, because I do know we're, we're, we're moving on in the show a little bit. Um, 
Lorraine, this business of uh, uh, of damages and, and, and health and coming back to the tailings and so on, um, I was... Uh, actually, we had uh, uh, Grandfather William Commander on one of the earlier shows here that in the, in, in the Economics of Conflict series, and uh, he was talking about the Anishinaabe prophecies that said... Uh, you know, now now is the time when common sense and the First Nation spirituality will begin to uh, um, return, when we as a human species uh, begin to value life over destroying life. So I wondered um, uh, if uh, you could talk, Lorraine, just a bit for... Uh, on what is going on uh, in Elliot Lake? Why is it a retirement community? I mean, is that uh, people just uh, aging there because uh, uh, the... Uh, <coughs> sorry. Uh, if the people are just uh, growing old and dying there, or is there... Uh, uh, if the berries aren't fit to eat and the animals can't reproduce, I mean, is it becoming a wasteland? And uh, uh, are there any responsibilities that the... Uh, that the white society, for example, uh, uh, has towards the First Nations. Well, I talk about valuing, you know, valuing life. You know, if you think about the cost, and, and we're going to do an accounting, I mean, we have to factor in the cost of the loss of, of human life. And the workers' compensation packages, I think the maximum survivor benefit is $30,000 per dead minor. Um, but, you know, can you put a price tag on the loss of a lake? And we, we're starting to recognize, I think, because of pressure, that water is sacred. I mean, water is a fundamental element of life that we're all, we all need. And it, can we afford to give up one more lake as a tailings basin? Mm-hmm. We've sacrificed ten lakes. We have to maintain a water cover on top of those tailings so they don't oxidize and continue to blow around. Uh, that's putting stress on, you know, local water systems. We, we're not measuring, you know, the cost of, of, of a lake, and we're not calculating can we afford to pay that. I mean, from an Aboriginal perspective, I say we can't afford to pay one more drop of water for uranium mining. We're all made, sorry. Yeah, and, I mean, the community, because of the exodus when the miners left, um, they were laid off, of course. I mean, it's an economically depressed area. And if the city of Elliott Lake wanted to maintain some tax base, they had to entice people to come and take up these empty houses. So that's why it's sold as a retirement living community. They attract retired people from various parts of Canada. So there are two, you know, there's actually a number of communities in the local, in the local area that are about 40 kilometers away from each other. Elliott Lake is the main center, and then there's the Serpent River Band of Ojibwe Indians, you know, which is a very economically depressed community. Uh, I think the unemployment in the area is at 13%. Okay. You see, because the problem that we're facing uh, here in Ottawa, and um, I notice that both of you are going to be in town uh, next week on uh, for the uh, for our event at the uh, uh, public library, and uh, Jim, I understand you're going to be doing a book tour here as well. So this show 
uh, is basically to introduce you, I think, to the uh, uh, Ottawa community in general and the uh, uh, Chin Radio listeners in particular. Uh, I was mentioning uh, to you, I think, on the phone that when we finish this, uh, uh, recordings of the show will be available. And if you have any uh, any ways of wanting to uh, advertise uh, uh, what you've been saying to single industry communities and people that d- don't get uh, are not in the Ottawa region, the Chin Radio does broadcast over uh, over the internet, and so we can, in fact, with this uh, this program, reach. Uh, a number of the single industry mining communities that probably are not as well served as uh, as the uh, the metropolitan centres. Uh, so uh, next week um, we have Donna Dillman, the Charbot Lake, uh, talking to us about uh, the uh, mining and exploration that's starting there. Um, I know that we in Ottawa are looking forward enormously to listening to the two of you when you arrive in town, uh, particularly to see what happens uh, downstream when the mining companies come in and they say that mining is safe and so on. And the last thing uh, for for this show, I think we've got a little time left, is if you have any... Um, any suggestions as to what we or the community in Ottawa, I mean, we are a million people here, it's not as if we're up in the boonies, um, what more information or what is the key information that we need in order to make a, a rational decision? I mean, how can we, quote, know uranium better? Uh, yeah. I um, there's there's a lot that we don't have the time, but, you know, the economics is important, but, of course, we shouldn't lose track of this uh, intergenerational question and the long-term impact on environmental and human health. Um, Lorraine was talking about water. Well, in Saskatchewan, when they, go, when they went to the hearings to try to get public approval for expanding uranium mining, they, accord, they of course, always talk in fail-safe terms as if they have state-of-the-art ways to control the pollution. In the real world, um, there's mine spills, there's tailings dams breakage, there's uh, lakes that are filled with runoff from tailings ponds that are then redefined as tailings ponds and are no longer lakes as a way to get around the, uh, the regulations. And this process, of course, just continues on and on. And then there's the abandonment. Uh, Uranium City still has not dealt with tailings problems from the 1950s. Port Radium from the 30s, when the radium mine was started up and now uh, it became the source of some of the weapons-grade uranium for the Manhattan Project. So basically it's a process of we talk a lot about safety when we want public approval. We talk a lot about economic advantages when we know people are suffering. But I guess all of us as communities have to start thinking about real costs, long-term costs, and moving in terms of the alternatives, which, of course, don't carry these risks. Uh, Uranium mining is not sustainable in an economic sense or even as an energy system. Um, International atomic energy estimates of uranium that's available for mining now at today's uh, 
use of nuclear energy would run out in 80 years. If the nuclear industry was able to convince the public and the governments to increase three or fourfold to reduce so-called greenhouse gases, then the supply would be even shorter. So we'd be confronted 20, 30 years down the road with exactly the same question of making a transition, a conversion to sustainable energy systems, which are going to be renewable. And we'd have 10, 15 times the toxic waste in terms of tailings or radioactive spent fuels. Well, it's this toxic waste, if I may uh, um, jump in here, which has got, uh, I think, the uh, the national capital region has got to, and western Quebec and uh, so on, the whole of the the Ottawa Valley and Mississippi, uh, uh, the Mississippi Valley and the Ottawa Valley and the Rideau Lake system. I mean, this is, this is we're facing a, a possibility of uh, something really quite serious coming into the whole of the, uh, uh, whole of this um, watershed that goes down through Montreal, Quebec, and then out into the St. Lawrence. And I think what I hear you two saying is that uh, certainly the public at large, I mean, the corporations, they make the profits and we get irradiated. Well, I think we better take a look at that and uh, um, hopefully in the next while and your tours and visits here, uh, we'll, we'll, um, we'll be taking a look at that and certainly we can do what we can to uh, help you spread the word and get people more knowledgeable about where exactly where the trade-offs are and exactly what it is we're being asked to swallow. Jim uh, Harding and uh, Lorraine Reckmans, on behalf of uh, our listeners here in Ottawa, Chin Radio, uh, we, we thank you for your time today, and thank you, Jeremy, for uh, helping put this together, and we look forward to, uh, we, we look forward to your visit uh, in about a week's time, I guess, guys. You're going to be in the area? Thank you. Thank you very much for having us on. Thank and you. We'll see you there. You will. Yes, <laughs> Okay. Uh, safe journey as you uh, you come up towards the national capital region again. Uh, you've been listening to uh, uh, our cross cultural program, Jeremy Wright, Gary Michaels, and our special guests, uh, Dr. Jim Harding, author of uh, Canada's uh, Deadly Secret: Saskatchewan Uranium and the Global Nuclear System, and Lorraine Reckman's. Uh, she's written This Is My Homeland, which uh, tells the story of the impacts of uranium mining on her Aboriginal community's traditional territory near Elliott Lake, Ontario. We thank you for being part of the program. Jeremy, thanks for being uh, with us this afternoon. Very welcome. And we look forward to uh, next week, uh, the 22nd, here on Chin 97.9. Gary Michaels reminding you that uh, you'll have an opportunity to uh, meet the authors uh, next week, uh, Tuesday the 22nd, at the Green Door at 198 Main Street, uh, Main Street, pardon me, at 3 in the afternoon, at uh, Singing Pebble Books uh, will be there. Uh, there there's also uh, Thursday, January the 24th, Reading at the Table Restaurant at 1.30 in the afternoon. That's uh, at 1230 Wellington, uh, just west of Holland. And uh, you also have an opportunity to uh, check them out at uh, the Black Sheep Inn on Riverside Drive in Wakefield, Quebec. And once again, if you'd like to contact Michelle Landry, uh, she'll uh, be more than uh, willing and able to uh, respond to your emails. That's Michelle underscore Landry, Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E underscore Landry, L-A-N-D-R-Y, at simpatico.ca, or you may reach her at 613-836-3258. And we look forward to uh, part two of this program a week from today. The 22nd here on Ottawa's Multicultural Voice Chin Radio, 97.9. And fittingly, this piece of music to end the show. This land is your land. This land is my land. From the
my footsteps to the sparkling sands of her diamond deserts, and all around me her voice was singing. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the redwood forest. Was made. 